You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit www.providencetx.org. Good morning, Providence. See, I knew if I did that, I'd get a reaction. I knew it. I'm going to do that more often. Um, how's everyone doing today? That was a bit worse. Um, okay, uh, just want to thank you for gathering here with us today. If I haven't met you before, my name's Luke Hall, and I serve as one of the hosts here at the church. Uh, Providence is a community of believers formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And to that end, we teach from the scriptures each and every week, because we believe they've been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Christ. We're currently in a series in the book of Mark titled King and Crown, where we've been looking at the life of Jesus, as well as how our current culture tries to find their identity outside of him. If you have your Bibles with you today, would you please turn with me to Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to... 37. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some in the seat pockets in the chairs in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please consider that a gift from us today, because we would just love for you to be able to read the Bible in your own time. Again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 24. I know it says 28, promise you it's 24. Um, Mark chapter 20, Mark, <laughs> Mark chapter 13, this is 24 to 37. If you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Providence, hear the word of the Lord. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in heaven will be shaken and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake. You do not know when this time will come. It's like a man going on a journey, and when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he comes suddenly and you find you asleep. And what I say to you is, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy yourselves as we continue our march through the book of Mark. Uh, like Luke said, I feel like every time Luke's here, I'm just I'm quoting like uh, gospel authors. Luke said we're working through Mark and we need a host named Matthew so that we can fulfill our calling before God. But um, I, wanted, I wanted to quickly recap kind of what we're doing with chapter 13 before I pray. Um, chapter 13 is last week, if you haven't listened to the podcast or you weren't here with us, I'd encourage you to do that. It will make sense of a, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about uh, this morning. But what we see in the book of Mark chapter 13 is similar to what we see in Matthew 24 and other areas of Luke, where Jesus is giving uh, a prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem, which is going to take place in 70 AD. We've seen that historically, but that it serves as a dual prophecy of sorts. And by a dual prophecy, I mean, 
that there is both a fulfillment in the near term and an expectation of a fulfillment later. And the example that we used last week was like the prophecy of Samuel that a child would be born to David who would build the house of the Lord and that that house would endure forever. Obviously, we know that now that we're on the other side of the first advent of Jesus Christ, that Christ was the culmination of that fulfillment of that prophecy. But for those who heard those words in that day, it would have been the near-term prophecy of Solomon who actually was responsible for the building of the first temple in Jerusalem and also was the son, the immediate son of David, the king of Israel. So in similar ways, we get that in Mark 13. There's a dual prophecy nature to this book. Last week, I talked about the near-term and my focus this morning is to talk about the long term, the, the days and the hours that no man knows, the, the end times, the what is still coming, the return of Jesus Christ. So before we jump in, I want to pray and I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. If you'll bow your heads, uh, I'll pray for us. Father, thank you that your word has been preserved for us. We thank you that even in this very passage, you have said that heaven and earth will pass away, but your words will not. And so we do ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts that are receptive to your eternal and sacred word. We pray against the temptation that we may all have to find ourselves as more clever than your word. or not in need of your word because we know best. Instead, we ask that you would help us to humble ourselves that we might receive that which you have for us in and through your perfect word this morning. God asks that you would admonish us that are idle, that you would give us encouragement for those who are faint-hearted, help for those who are weak, even rebuke for those who may need it. But God, you know us all and you know that which we need. And we ask that you, by the power of your spirit, that you would minister to us and meet those needs now. And my God, I pray that we would have not just the gravity of the imminent and physical return that you've promised, but that it would also give us a great hope that your first coming gave us confidence that we could look forward to your return because you have absorbed all wrath on our behalf and now your return means peace. So give us that hope we ask. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. I want to start by reading from Providence's Statement of Faith. This is what all of our members are, are given and it's on our website. And the reason I want to read from this is one of the aims that we try to accomplish as elders is to be biblically sound and biblically, biblically orthodox in our understanding of the scripture, but also to leave as much room for disagreement on what we would consider to be second tier theological issues. So, you know, you have kind of your second or third tier for that matter, but, you know, you kind of have concentric circles like a target. That which is at the red hot center bullseye of the gospel, we can't Uh, bend on those. We can't break on those. These are the things that the Bible tells us we know. And if we didn't know, if we weren't confident in, then it would shake the very foundations of our salvation. And so these would be things like the inerrancy of God's word. This would be things like Christology, the person and work of Jesus, who he was, what he came to do, death, burial, resurrection of Christ, actual being physical, not just like a a myth that was told, and it's a good myth that kind of changes us like Lord of the Rings changes us when Aragorn comes back. No, Jesus was really a man. He really died. He really rose again, and he changes you not like Viggo Mortensen, but like the king, the real king of kings, okay? 
so what we did with our statement of faith is what are those things? And the reason I want to read this is when we think of end times, uh, eschatology, which is like the $10 word for end time stuff, um, we typically think there's so many disagreements about this. This has to be third tier, second tier issue. And in a sense, the details about your eschatology, that's true. It could be second and third tier. There is a part that is first tier. And I want to read to you what our statement of faith says so this can kind of set the stage for what I want to spend the majority of our time, at least at the beginning of the sermon about, namely, why is it important to believe this? This is what our statement of faith says. Jesus ascended into heaven where at the right hand of God, he now intercedes for his people and he rules as Lord over all. He will return in power and glory to judge the world, this is the key line, and to consummate his redemptive purposes. I'm going to read that again. He will return in power and glory to judge the world and to consummate his redemptive purposes. The second coming of Christ is integral to him consummating the redemptive purposes of the Father. In other words, we cannot have the fullness of God's plan manifested apart from the king returning. So it becomes a first order issue for Christians to believe Jesus is going to return judge the living and the dead, and consummate the kingdom. Now, Mark 13 is, again, a dual prophecy. He gives us some indications about the signs of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, and woven within, we see these signs, these warnings about what may come at the end of the age. Now, I want to make mention of this. If the destruction of Jerusalem was a cosmic reordering, we see this in the very beginning of the passage we've read so far, verses 24 through 27. In those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Now, some of this is symbolic, I think, of what we saw being shaken in 70 AD, namely what happens in both the Old Testament prophets and in the New Testament prophecies is that sun, moon, stars are used to be allegories for power, rulers, authorities. And this is what we see happening in the destruction of Jerusalem is these powers and authorities, they are actually falling and being broken as the temple's destroyed. However, I also believe that in order for there to be a full transition, just as the 70 AD fall of, Jerusalem, fall of the temple of Jerusalem was a transition from old covenant to new covenant. There will come a day where the sun, moon, and stars, the cosmic signs themselves will be literal because it will be the culmination of the final kingdom of God, the judgment of God coming on all of creation and salvation. And so when we read this, it's giving us a hint of what Revelation speaks of later, namely that there'll be a cosmic reordering at the end of this age. The fig tree tells us in the next passage that there will be signs, just like a fig tree shows you signs that summer is near. These are the signs that will show you that Christ is near. And then he gives us this promise, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I love that line because it kind of gives us an indication of why I'm confident this is a dual prophecy. When he says that, you know, I know there's different interpretations of this, but when he says all these things are going to happen in this generation, Say, okay, that's 70 AD. And then he goes right on to say, and my words will not pass away. Even after that, they'll have meaning. Even as all these things happen, these words will hold meaning. I want to read to you John chapter 14, 
This is verse one through six. This is gonna be a very familiar passage to you. It's one of the I am statements of Jesus. This is what maybe you've heard in many sermons before. Maybe you've heard it at summer camp. This is where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Powerful passage. But sometimes we miss the context in which Jesus says these words. And he says these words in the context of a conversation with the disciples about the last days. Let's read it together. Verse one, let not your hearts be troubled. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. You gotta love the King James in this version. It says, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I love that version because I think of a house and then I think in God's house, which is like a bigger than a mansion, there's mansions in his mansion. You know, it's kind of hard to describe that. But in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, the disciples were not crazy about this doctrine that Jesus was laying out, namely that he had to go to the cross, he had to die, he had to rise again, and then he would ascend to the father and leave them for a season. Did not like that in any, in any way. They kept asking him, why would you do that? First of all, why would you die? They didn't quite understand the rising again. And then they said, why would you leave us? Don't leave us. And Jesus here is telling them, hey, I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. If it weren't so, I wouldn't tell you. And then he says this, and if I go and prepare a place for you, this is the key, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am going, you may be also. That may as well be a paraphrase of Revelation 21 and 22 when God speaks from heaven and says, now that the new Jerusalem has come out of heaven to earth, God dwells with his people. He is with them forever. There's no temple in the city anymore, Revelation tells us, because the lamb is the temple. There's no light in the city anymore because the lamb is the light. He's with us consummating this full kingdom. That's what Jesus is speaking of. Verse four, and you know the way to where I am going. You guys are gonna love this part. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? I love Thomas. He's saying all that you were thinking. All the disciples are probably thinking that too, but Thomas is pretty straightforward. He's just, you know, that kind of guy. He goes, don't worry, you'll know the way. And they go, Thomas says, "Uh, no, we don't. We don't even know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going. How are we gonna know the way, you know? I love that. And then Jesus responds and here's your, you know, here's your life verse. This is the coffee mug verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus would go on in that passage to tell them, I will not leave you as orphans, but I'm coming back for you. Now, why do I read that? Because the second coming, at least in those terms, is not a second or third tier issue. It is a first tier issue. If we do not believe that Christ is coming, returning to make all things right, then we do not have fundamental Orthodox Christian doctrine. And listen to me, the longer that you live, and especially the longer that you live as a Christian, the more apparent this becomes. It does not matter how many churches we plant. It does not matter how many you know, good deeds that we do. We need a king who will come and consummate so that the presence of sin will be gone forever. Now, I didn't say it doesn't matter in the terms of who cares if we do it. I mean, it's futile to believe that without the king, we could have the kingdom. It's futile to believe that, if, that we could have the Garden of Eden without the God who walks with us in the cool of the day, that we could have the crown without the king of the cross to come. We must have Jesus return. I'm gonna read to you, this quote was too long, and so I didn't put it up, but I have to give you 
who says it much better than me and more eloquently than me, Charles Haddon Spurgeon on this very issue. And because it's not gonna be read, you can pretend like I'm saying it. It will even flatter me if you do so. So please pretend as though this was from my mind and I'll feel better. He says it like this. Moreover, the great scheme of redemption requires Christ's return. Think about that. It's a part of that scheme that as he once came with a sin offering, he must come a second time without a sin offering. That as he came once to redeem, he should come a second time to claim the inheritance which he has so dearly bought. He came once that his heel might be bruised, but he comes again to break the serpent's head with a rod of iron, to dash his enemies in pieces as potter's vessels. He, come, he came once to wear the crown of thorns, but he comes again to wear the diadem of universal dominion. He comes to the marriage supper. He comes to gather his saints together. He comes to glorify them with himself on this very same earth where he once and they once were despised and rejected of men. Understand this, the whole drama of redemption cannot be perfected without this last act of the coming king. The complete history of paradise regained requires that the new Jerusalem should come down from heaven, from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And it also requires that the heavenly bridegroom should come riding forth on his white horse, conquering and to conquer, King of kings and Lord of lords, amidst the everlasting hallelujahs of saints and angels, it must be so, close quote. I told you he'd say it better. There is no other way. It must happen this way. And so to us, we must say the second coming, not the details of the events preceding it, but the second coming as a doctrine that you and I are certain of is a first tier issue for us. And why is that important? because the second coming has become something that we avoid and also has become a doctrine that is mocked, sometimes sideshowed, but it's essential to the very purposes of God. If our king is not to return and consummate his kingdom, then what hope do you and I have? Well, he is going to do that. It is our hope that we proclaim every single week with the Lord's Supper. The Bible tells us that we will be doing this until he comes meaning that once Jesus returns, we'll have the marriage supper of the lamb and you and I won't be taking communion anymore because we'll have the real thing. Not the shadow, but the substance. We have a real hope. Now, I wanna read to you one of the prophecies from Peter, who we believe is perhaps one of the witnesses that gives the account of the book of Mark to Mark. Listen to what he says about the end times. This is 2 Peter chapter three, and I'm gonna be reading verses one through 14. So just kind of buckle up, it's a little bit, but hear me, listen to what he says. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, listen to this, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, (laughs) I love that, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Tell me if you've heard this or maybe even thought it yourself. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were since the beginning of creation. Sounds familiar, right? For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God 
and that by means of these, that being water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What is he talking about? Noah's flood. So he's making a prediction saying that just as it was with Noah's days, so it's gonna be in the last days, saying they forgot about Noah and so they didn't learn the lesson. And what's the lesson of Noah? No one believed Noah when he built the boat. All of them mocked him when he built the boat. He kept preaching and preaching about salvation in the boat and they didn't know what rain looked like, okay? If it be so that we read Revelation and we don't understand what in the world John's talking about, that would be according to the pattern of everyone else when they watched Noah build the ark and have never seen what in the world God was talking to Noah about. And yet he was a preacher of righteousness. So Peter says, listen, they forgot about Noah's lesson and they're gonna forget about it again. What does he say? But by the same word, the same word that flooded the earth, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Now, this is Peter telling us that the way in which you and I view time and the way in which God views time being that he is outside of time and time exists because of him are slightly different. That's euphemistic. We think it takes a long time for God to do things. Like why would he do this redemptive story arc over the course of these thousands of years? Why wouldn't he do it more quickly? And what you need to know is A, he does do it that way. It is his pattern. So you should expect it more. And B, Peter tells us, God looks at a thousand years of us as though it were a day. Now here's why he does that. Verse nine, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The purpose of God's slowness to act in his redemptive purposes in the world is so that more people will have time to get in the ark before the door closes. That's the idea. God is patient with us. He loves us and cares for us and wants more people to come to the saving knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ. So he tarries so that the kingdom will advance and the gospel will be preached more because there always will come a day And this is what the second coming teaches us, that when Jesus returns, the door to the ark closes. When we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be no more of that opportunity to enter into the ark. Then he says this, and this is just really New Testament 101 when talking about the second coming. The day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Here's another piece. Why is the second coming important? All the New Testament writers believed that in light of the second coming, it should change the way we live today. They all say that. They all say that you should change the way that you live by the way that you believe about Jesus' return. He says we should be waiting for and hastening the coming day of our God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, here's what he tells you, be diligent to be found in him without spot or without blemish and at peace. In other words, many will scoff, Peter says. They'll say, yeah, yeah, every generation thought Jesus was coming back. Look what it got them. 88 reasons the Lord's coming back in 88. It ain't 88 anymore. 
you know. And Peter says, I get it. This is exactly what happens in the day of Noah. This is exactly what happened when Jerusalem was destroyed the first time and the false prophets said, we'll never get destroyed. It's exactly what happens in 70 AD when Jerusalem's destroyed the second time when the false prophets say, no, all of these cosmic signs are actually God's love for us and God's care that he is pleased with our behavior. But the real prophets were saying, no, he's not pleased. The judgment's coming. And Peter says, this pattern will always be so. The false prophets will lie to you and say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And they'll say, don't worry, he's not coming. That's why the Bible tells us they'll be giving in marriage and everything will be normal and then the Lord will come. But he tarries for one reason and one reason alone. This is key for us. It's not just key for us, it's key for our neighbors. He tarries, the Lord tarries because he wants people to know him. And that means that you and I have a calling to be a part of people knowing the gospel so that they might get into the ark of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we move into the second half, I wanna say, what are the details that we know about the second coming? Like the Bible's clear about them. Because I'm not gonna get into all the patterns and preceding events and all those, because probably amongst us all, let's say there's like 100, I don't know, 30 or 40 of us in here, maybe 150. We probably have 153 different opinions because that's how detailed this gets. But what do we know the scriptures say that's, impossible for us to argue about. Well, let's start with this. Number one, Jesus' return will be physical, obvious, and evident. It tells us that you'll see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Jesus tells his disciples that it'll be like lightning from the east to the west. He says, don't worry when they tell you go out into the woods because I'm there. Don't go because they're lying to you. You'll know that it's me. Number two, Bible tells us that no man knows the day or the hour. That's what you see in verse 32. If someone tells you that they have specific dates, don't listen to this person. Even if they happen to get it right, which is very unlikely, they do not know because Jesus himself says that he doesn't know only the father that is in heaven. Number three, he will come suddenly and some will not be awake and ready. That's what it tells us in verse 32. And also all throughout the New Testament, Jesus will come like a thief in the night. Many might not be ready for his return. Number four, there will be signs of his coming and there's a pattern laid out for us in scripture. We see this in verses 28 through 29 when Jesus tells us that just like the fig tree sheds its leaves and tells us when summer's near, even so we will know when the time is near. Finally, we believe that he will gather the elect, those who are in Christ from the four corners of the earth. We see that in verse 27. Jesus is coming back for a people. Jesus is coming back for his people who call upon his name. That's the purpose of his return. But it is a dual purpose. Judgment and salvation was the purpose of the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus saved people out of Jerusalem by warning them, said run to the mountains. And he also judged Jerusalem. Even so, Jesus' second coming will have both elements, judgment and salvation. He will pronounce a final judgment on the world, the living and the dead. That's what the Bible tells us. Those who are in Christ, the Bible tells us that they will have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. They will be read, not based on our own merit, but on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. And then there will be those who have refused and rejected Christ. And the Bible tells us that we cast in outer darkness and torment apart from the Lamb and apart from the life of God. That may offend you, but you got to take it up with the Lord. That is what the Bible says. I got one job and it's to tell you what the Bible says. And then you can work that out in your prayer closets. The kingdom of God it will also be manifested fully on earth as it is in heaven. That is how the book of Revelation ends. Now, what are we to do with this information? 
this chapter, chapter 13, and this is a, a biblical interpretation technique that you should use when you're reading the Bible. Look for repetition. If a chapter or a section of scripture keeps saying the same things, underline those and figure out why is this being repeated. If you do that in the Proverbs, you'll have all ink. Like, it should be all highlights because he just keeps saying the same things over and over again. This chapter says two different phrases three times a piece. Be on your guard and stay awake. Both phrases, three times a piece, one chapter. Be on your guard, stay awake. The entire chapter ends with him saying, what I say, remember he's talking to four guys. What I say, I say not only to you, but to everyone. Meaning that he's telling them, I'm telling you this admonition and it's meant to be for all my disciples, stay awake. Okay, so let's talk about what questions should we ask of those admonitions? Well, namely, stay awake, how? Be on guard for what? And I have a few answers to that question. The first is be on guard. And I wanna use kind of a head, heart, and hands paradigm. Maybe this might be helpful to remember for your notes. We ought to be on guard for the very thing that Jesus warns us about in this chapter, namely false teachers, false prophets, liars that deceivers come in the last days and they lie to you and you have to guard yourself from that. And we do that in three ways. One, we're on guard against anything that would pollute our minds against the truth of Christ and cause us to believe heresy and lies. And heresy and lies can be manifested not merely in grand schemes of ideology, but tiny subversive ways that cause us to trust anything other than Jesus for salvation. So we have to guard ourselves, guard our minds. Remember, every sin is always irrational because it is an offense against the God who made you. The first thing that happens when we sin is our our passions are inflamed once our reason is corrupted. So guard your minds. God made you reasonable creatures in his own image. Guard your minds against everything that is unreasonable and, and seeks to corrupt your reason and make you make decisions on the basis of passion. If I had tons of time, I'd give you plenty of examples. But if you're a parent, don't you know this? Talk to your kids. Why did you do such a thing? They weren't thinking, they were feeling. I don't know, I can't help it, I just wanted it. And that wanting is the craving, passions, desires. The reason is that which governs those passions and desires. It has to be corrupted first so that they eat 75 cookies to get them really sick. They know in their minds it's not a good idea. Their craving tells them you gotta do it. And we as adults are just larger versions of that child, okay? We know the things that are going to destroy us and we somehow find ourselves in the cookie jar. Not like our hand in, like we're living in it because we've been corrupted in our reason. Second, anything that would co-opt your heart against the love of God, it will always turn you to idolatry and worldly passions. So be on guard against those things that are fanning into flame a a worldly passion, not a love for God. And I joked with the 9 a.m. on this and I have to do it together with you. Anything that would strengthen your hands against obedience and towards unrighteousness and sin and debauchery, be on guard against it. What do I mean by this? We have bought the lie of modernism that any technology that progresses is therefore good and should be received. I am not anti-technology, although I am much more Amish than most of you listening to me. I'm not telling you to cut it all out. I am saying, however, that the idea that all progress technologically is good and therefore should be received ignores human nature. 
It ignores the reality that some technology is merely a device to make you a more skilled sinner. Okay? It gets you better at the sinful proclivities that already exist within you. Okay? The example that I gave with the nine o'clock service that was kind of funny is when we started with the movie pictures, you know, in the in the early 1900s and you went to the movies and you watch, you know, maybe not all that corrupting and you go to your family and, you know, you get to watch a moving picture and it's great, isn't it? It's fun. Guys, now we have fully received a technology that allows us to stream movies nonstop like you are a virtual drone. It's called Netflix. And it's so embarrassing that the technology itself actually asks us, are you still there? Because we are, and we're like, don't ask me again. There's literally a thing, don't ask me again, this is shameful. I don't want you to ask me if, yes, I've been watching The Office for 74 hours straight. So perhaps, perhaps something that could have been innocent has now strengthened our hands towards things like debauchery, sin, laziness, slothfulness. And I could go on and on. We got a lot of kids in the room, but you guys know what I mean. Technology has made it easier for us to sin in certain ways. Strengthens our hands against the very God who made us. So we ought to be on guard against that. Again, I'm not asking you or even encouraging you necessarily to cut all of these things out. However, if you haven't considered cutting some of them out, maybe you don't understand the dangers of your own sinful proclivities. Maybe maybe you haven't considered it enough. Reflect on it. We stay awake. This seems to be, stay awake seems to be an offensive prescription. If be on guard is defensive, stay awake seems to be offensive, telling us that we should increase our knowledge of God, which builds up everything and everyone around us. We should be in our word. Staying awake spiritually is treasuring Christ through devotion and worship, which stirs passion for God and not idols. Obeying Christ's commands through repentance and faith. It humbles us, but it also exalts us in God's presence because it empowers us. It's the means through which we are able to be made right with God again. So this stay awake has to do with a, um, the book of Romans, Paul tells the Romans, do not become slothful in your zeal. You remember a sloth? Have you ever seen a sloth? Like sort of cute creatures, but embarrassing creatures, you know? Like if you, someone called you a sloth, you wouldn't think, like girls, you're not like, sloths are cute, but if someone called you a sloth, you wouldn't be like, thank you, Right? Like, that's so sweet. Because sloths lay around, lazy, sleep most of their day and their life away. And Paul says, don't be like this spiritually. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Don't be lulled into spiritual sleep, but be actively zealous for the things of God. And in so doing, it will help you to be on guard against that which seeks to deceive. Now, maybe the most important and the thing that I've been rushing towards is this portion of my sermon. And that is, I want to, I want to sound the alarm on something that I believe is subversive and, and deceptive in our day and age that seems to be obvious to me and I think that you will see it as well. But sometimes it's hard for us to make the bridge between first century Jerusalem and 21st century Texas. And so we read these passages, we think, yeah, false prophets, we don't have any of those because, you know, we don't have anybody that's being self-righteous. We're just a real pagan land. And I want you to change your mindset with this. When you think false prophet, I want you to think lying mouthpiece. That's what a false prophet is. The first false prophet was not the ones who ran around Jerusalem and proclaimed the prophecies of 70 AD. 
The first false prophet manifested in the Garden of Eden in chapter number three of Genesis. He manifested as a serpent, as a symbol to show you that the false prophets are forked tongue liars, slimy, deceitful. They will not deceive you through coercion. They will deceive you through seduction. Usually they don't start with the strong arming. They start with the enticing. False prophets do not show up with guns first drawn on you. They first show up with um, Turkish delight as the Narnian. You know, remember Jade of the Witch? She shows up with cookies. It's only later that Edmund finds himself with all the other people in jail. Okay. I want to read to you Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. I told you I was getting apocalyptic. Here's your beast verse. I'm going to give it to you now in the name of the Lord. And then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. I'm going to read it again. I saw another beast rising out of the sea, arising out of the earth, and it had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. What is John seeing? This beast-like false prophet rises out of the earth and gives the appearance of a gentle animal with the voice and the true beneath the surface identity of a dragon. The appearance of our modern day prophets are of this ilk. The total tolerance of our age is manifesting this beast of revelation that is manifested in the last days. I'm not here to say this morning whether or not the Lord will return in our time, but to merely be a watchman sounding of the alarm. The scripture calls me to this and it gives me a dire warning. If I do not sound the alarm, then the blood will be on my hands. This is what the scripture says. If I don't sound an alarm, it's on me. So I want to say the great apostasy that has swept the, the Western world recently, and it has, has come under the guise of niceness. It has come under the guise of tolerance and acceptance. It takes the form of a mere lamb, but it presents a message that is innocuous. And to the naked eye, you would think that this message even may parade around like a Christian message. But if you have the discernment of the spirit, you see the breath of the dragon beneath this lamb's appearance. This message that's given to us, it denies the power and the authority of the gospel to call sinners to repentance and faith because it demolishes those categories altogether. After all, there are no sinners. There's just people who were born a certain way and that way should be accepted. There is no power or authority because that would be abusive. And there's no need for repentance and faith because rather than presenting a God who came down from heaven to earth to die for us that we might be reborn and made a new creation, we're presented with a false God that there is no reason for Jesus to have to die because after all, he was pleased with affirming us just as we were anyway. And he didn't have to die. There's no need for bloodshedding. You're just being too hard on yourself. And the only thing that really needs to be punished is not debauchery or sin. It's those pesky people that say there is such a thing as debauchery and sin. They are the chief ones to punish. The problem, of course, is myriad, but I'll start with it's not the God of the Bible. The new gospel, which is no gospel at all, is a hollow message. It only resembles the true gospel, just like your friend who put that costume on for Halloween resembles that celebrity. And by that, I mean not very much, okay? 
This new gospel speaks of love without truth, grace without repentance, freedom without sacrifice, atonement without blood, salvation with no judgment, a crown with no cross. In short, it is no gospel at all. And now, of course, it's begun to unravel before our eyes. I don't know if you guys have noticed this. People are starting to see the true dragon nature of this lamb that's been propagating this message. But I want to say to you, the reason for that is because the dragon has already made his way into the pen. The dragon's aim was always to devour the sheep, not have dinner with them. That's what he told you, so you'd let him in the house. Remember the Little Red Riding Hood? The dress up as grandma and come in and act nice was for one purpose alone, to get access to Little Red Riding Hood. It's just the devouring that the dragon's after. The costume is for a purpose, and that purpose is to get it within the gates. And so now we're seeing this dragon pull off his mask, but it is because he's already within and feels as though he has no reason to hide anymore. The doors are shutting. His aim is to devour the sheep. The dragon who presents as a lamb mentioned in Revelation here is before us. Now I want to say, is it the final iteration court? There is no way for me to know or for you to know. I do not know. Here's what I can tell you. My job is to sound the alarm and say, this isn't good. The dragon's sitting next to sheep. <laughs> it's not good. Our kids are sitting next to the wolf and he's got this very poor, poorly put together grandma costume on and everyone keeps treating him like a nice grandma. And I'm seeing smoke coming out of the mask. And it's my job to say, sound the alarm. And so I say that in front of you today. Beware of the leaven of the modern day false prophets. Their voices are loud. Their reach is broad. Hear me right now, in your pocket, on your phones, they are looking, this, these prophets are looking to speak to you. They're alerting you. They're buzzing on you. The media itself, the news that you and I believe is real is meant to lie to you for one reason alone, and this is not a political statement, the reason is to dissuade you from the king and to keep your eyes away from the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, there are many who will say to me, what a religious zealot, listen to this crazy. Hear me, I will apologize for nothing I just said. I care not even a little bit about those people's opinion because that's exactly what the Bible says everyone will say when it's happening. Or another way to put it would be, that sounds just like what a dragon might say if I said, watch out for the dragon. So I say it to you, reject it with all your might, friends. Let us be on guard and reject it. Teaching our children to reject it. Now, before we all go off and get into a bunker, I want to mention this. The Bible doesn't tell us that our job then should be to hide away and only be on guard. Stay awake is, an, is a, it's a nod to our main calling, namely that God's given us a stewardship. He's given us many things to steward over, the least of which is not the gospel, by the way, the greatest of which is the gospel, but many things to steward over. And what Jesus tells us is that when the master comes back at the hour that you don't know, blessed is the servant that he finds so doing when he returns. We have a job. And the best thing for us to do is not to be in a bunker, not to be hiding away and then say, just like the parable of the talents, I hid your talent in here, God, look what I got. But instead, when the, 
when the master returns, we need to be, even if we're beat up, bloodied, black-eyed, we're doing our job. Like, man, it got a lot harder when these dragons started being my boss, but I've been doing my job. We've been faithful to the calling. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read to you Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. This is another parable of Jesus. This is, by the way, I use this as a cross-reference to the back end, the last paragraph of chapter 13. Jesus says, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and he will serve them. If he comes at the second watcher and the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour that you do not expect. I wish for the sake of time I could read the rest of it. There's much more to be said because the opposite is is mentioned here. Those who are not ready. But Christians, we often fall into the trap of, you've heard this before, um, and if you're a teenager in there, you probably, I don't want to dissuade you from this uh, entirely. What's my calling in life? Trying to figure out what God's called me to, what God's called me to, what God's called me to. Adults, you know, some of us are still, we still do that too. You know, some, some of you are on your 17th degree plan and I get it, okay? We've all been here trying to figure out what God's called us to. Here's what I want to say. The amount that we know about what God's called us to is far greater than the mystery of what we don't know. And what I mean by that is God has explicitly stated what he calls all of his children to in many different verses, in many different ways, so that we can be faithful servants, even if we have not come to the knowledge of our unique gifts in its, in its perpetuity or in its fullness. You can be faithful to God today. Do you know the commandments of God? If you do, then you know your calling. If you don't, I'm giving you your calling. Learn the commandments of God and then do them. Are you using all the things that God's given you in such a way to steward them so that when he comes back as the master of those things that he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. What things am I talking about? First of all, the gospel. Every single Christian in the room, you've been given the gospel. Have you stewarded that gospel message and been the sower of that seed in such a way that if Christ returned tomorrow morning, you feel confident, he would say, you've stewarded it well. Family. If you're married, you're a husband, you're a wife, you have kids. If you're not, you have parents, you have siblings, you have friends. Are you stewarding those relationships God has placed into your life without even having to go and search for the 7,000th friend on Facebook that you don't even know? Are you faithful with the people right around you stewarding those relationships so that if Jesus were to return tomorrow, you would feel confident he could say, well done, good and faithful servant. You honored your mother and your father. I can keep going, possessions, money, time, and yes, of course, our gifts and our talents, are we stewarding them faithfully? So much so that we could feel confident going to bed tonight that the Lord Jesus would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because it's not a question of if you are called, it's a question of if we're faithful. You are called. We are called. I am called. The question is if we'll be faithful to that calling. And this morning, if you find yourself perhaps saying, oh, court, that's really heavy. I don't really feel confident that would be so. I want to leave you with this thought. Then this morning, the gospel message for you over again is 
the greatest thing that can be offered and a reminder that stewardship is applying it to yourself. Christ extends a hand to you this morning and he says not only will he forgive us and, and extend us mercy and grace, but he'll empower us for that very thing that you feel like you're not nailing right now. He will pour out his spirit on you. It's a promise for, your, for you and for your children and for your children's children. That's what the Bible tells us if we are just but to ask. So let those of us who are privileged this morning with the possession of the gospel, privileged with any amount of ability, let us spread the gospel. Inquire whether we could give an account of the Lord, an account to the Lord, if he were to come tonight and summon us and steward us and settle accounts. And if not, I wanna leave you with the gospel itself. There is no more precious gift than to apply it first to yourself. You see, there's not just a longing for Jesus' return that we should have. There's a laboring until he returns that we're called to. And so I leave you. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. If you are not a Christian this morning, I want to say this to you emphatically. Find safety in the door of the ark as it's open today for you. The door of the ark is open to you no matter who you are this morning. If you wonder why they put a spear through the side of Christ, it was to give you that symbol. That's why God did it, that the door of the ark's open, water and blood out of the side of Christ so that you can get in. You can get in. Run to the rock of ages cleft for you that you would hide yourself in him. That's my prayer for you this morning if you're not in Christ. And if you are, that we would both receive that overwhelming peace that comes in knowing that not on your basis will you be saved, but on the basis of Christ, we can be calm and know that even though the nations rage and the kingdoms fall, our God is secure and we are in him. And we can also be reminded, let us be about the business of our master so that if, not if, when he returns, we can hear the wonderful, wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me pray and then I'll lead us in communion. Father, what a great and wonderful thing it is that you would call us your children. Your second coming is before us. God, give us the confidence that just as your disciples and your apostles were not afraid to speak of the second coming, help us to have that same kind of courage. And in so doing, my God, help us to see the fruit that you and you alone can provide. We ask that we would see more people come to know Jesus Christ and see the power of the gospel displayed in their lives. Help us to lead our children and lead our families in such a way that they would be confident, not merely in your return, but also that when you return, that we will be with you. And God, as we sing and as we take of your supper, help us to not merely remember what you have done, but look forward to what you will do. We love and trust you, my God. And we ask these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.